Yes, so the reading is from Ecclesiastes, the whole of chapter 4, page 672. <clears throat> Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, then one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a wise but sorry, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to kingship, or he may have been born into poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end at all to the people who were before them, but those who come later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nigel. Just before Jeremy comes and preach, let's just bow our heads and pray for him. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus, that Jeremy can come and open your word for us. Open our hearts and minds. We ask that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives and reveal what you want to tell each one of us. Give us wisdom to go out into this world and then live out your word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Carle, and thank you, Nigel, for reading. Do... Um, if you've already lost your place in Ecclesiastes, it's very difficult to find again. Um, one of those books that you don't often dig out. So it's page 672. Do please keep that open in your Bibles. Uh, and thank you, Carly, for praying. Um, I'm a great fan of Proverbs. I don't just mean the book of Proverbs in the Bible. I mean Proverbs generally, little um, statements of wisdom, aphorisms, adages, whatever you want to call them. I like to collect Proverbs from around the world. Um, some of these I've shared in the past. You may remember them. Here are some of my favourites. Here's one from Denmark. They must have clean fingers who would blow another's nose. 
Here's another one from Cuba. A mother-in-law, like the yucca tree, is useful underground. <laughs> Might want to share that with your mother-in-law. Um, here's one from Egypt. Better the gurgling of a camel than the prayers of a fish. You ever heard the prayers of a fish? No, nor have I. Um, the Irish are especially good at proverbs. Uh, here's a couple. Never bolt your door with a boiled carrot. <laughs> Pretty sensible advice, if you ask me. And um, here's, here's actually my favourite. A cow pat is wider when trodden on. <laughs> what does that mean? And there are, of course, some great proverbs in Scripture. Uh, now that I'm ordained and I'm serving as a curate at St Mary's, I get to do weddings. I just love weddings, but I never quite understand why they always go for 1 Corinthians 13 as their Bible reading and all that mushy stuff about love. There's a much better verse in Proverbs. It's Proverbs 21, verse 9. Better to live on a corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> I wanted that for my wedding to Ruth, but she wouldn't have it. <laughs> there are less controversial ones, of course. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. That should be the motto for all our marriages, perhaps, especially mine. The thing about all these proverbs is that they contain elements of wisdom, nuggets of truth, truisms, if you like. They're wise sayings. And that's why the book of Proverbs, which comes before Ecclesiastes, is part of the wisdom literature in Scripture. You may know that other books in this wisdom tradition include the book of Job, um, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, and of course Ecclesiastes, which follows in Scripture, the book that we're studying here at Emmanuel on Sunday mornings. But the problem with Ecclesiastes in particular, as you've probably picked up if you've been here over the last few weeks, is that the wisdom that it shares with us is just a little bit depressing. There doesn't seem to be much good news in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's because Ecclesiastes is, by its own terms, a realistic description of everything under the sun. All that happens in life. And we know, don't we, that sometimes life is pretty rubbish. So all Ecclesiastes does is to reflect this sad reality. And as a result, it throws up some of the most depressing verses in the whole of the Bible. You may remember back in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, our narrator, who is the teacher, he says this, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. In chapter 2, we're told again that all work is meaningless. Chapter 3, we're told that humans have no advantage over animals because we all die in the end. That word meaningless appears almost 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as I think Andrew mentioned a few weeks ago, it's probably not the best translation of the original Hebrew. A better translation would be vapour, or breath, or mist. You see, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying that everything under the sun, everything that happens in life, is transient. It's temporary. 
It's here today and gone tomorrow, as they say. It's like the morning dew. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And then the other challenge of Ecclesiastes, as I've said, is that there isn't much good news in it. Yes, there are references to God in the book, but there's no praise of him. There's no mention of grace or redemption. It may be why nobody quotes from Ecclesiastes in the New Testament. It doesn't get quoted there. Note also, uh, you will note that also the word used for God in the book of Ecclesiastes is not Yahweh, the caring, loving, merciful God of, of Israel, but Elohim, which is a much more generic and impersonal name for God. It's almost as if the writer is kind of saying that God is over there, he's doing all his stuff, not really relating to the world, acting in his unique and mysterious way, while we are down here trying to work out what it's all about. What all this stuff in life is all about. As the writer puts it back in chapter 3, which you looked at last week, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And it's only at the very end of this book of Ecclesiastes, fast forward to chapter 12, spoiler alert for whoever is preaching on this in a few weeks' time, that we finally get some good news. It's at the very end, and it's a kind of antidote to all this doom and gloom. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here is the punchline to Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's a great conclusion, but did we really need 12 chapters of doom and gloom to get there? So the question is, why is Ecclesiastes even in the Bible? Why are we looking at it at Emmanuel on Sunday mornings? Well, I think Ecclesiastes is in the Bible because it shows ultimately why we need God. You see, life is, at first glance, ultimately meaningless. It is ultimately vapour. It's transient. Our work, our toil, our effort is ultimately pointless. But only, only if we look at life on its own terms, on its own worldly terms. If we think in heavenly terms, then life does have meaning. Because we were created to worship and glorify God, to fear God, and to keep his commandments, as it says at the end of the book. Because God is eternal, not temporary. Because the breath of God is not a vapour, it's not a mist. It's not gone in a moment, but rather it is his life-giving, eternal, Holy Spirit. As one commentator has observed, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to lift our hearts to heavenly things by showing us the utter futility and pointlessness of worldly things. A few weeks ago at St Mary's, I had to preach on Romans chapter 3. Those, those of you who know Romans chapter 3 will know that it's the chapter in which Paul goes on and on about the problem of human sin. Again, it's a challenging passage. Pretty depressing. Uh, here's verses 10 to 11 of chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Pretty negative stuff, isn't it? But 
Everything is in scripture for a reason. And the reason Paul writes that, as he does, is because he wants to convince us of the need for repentance and forgiveness. We can't get people to understand the good news of the gospel, the good news of the love and the mercy and the compassion of God, without first convicting, convicting people of their rebellion and sin. Otherwise, we're presenting a solution to a problem that people don't know they have. And likewise, in Ecclesiastes, we cannot truly understand our need for God, our need for a heavenly perspective on life and on death, our need for eternal meaning, unless we first understand the utter futility and pointlessness of life without God. And that is what Ecclesiastes is about, and that is why it's in the Bible. And chapter 4, the passage that we're looking at this morning, page 672, if you've lost your place, chapter 4 is no exception. In chapter 4, we are confronted with the stark reality of life today. In fact, we're presented with four things, each of which will be very familiar with us to us in this day and age. We see oppression and injustice. We see the rat race of work and climbing the greasy pole driven by envy of others. We see the tragedy of loneliness. And we see the fleeting nature of fame and popularity. Oppression, ambition and envy, loneliness, celebrity culture. You know, the teacher of Ecclesiastes could have been writing about today, the world in 2022. First, we see the, that there's oppression and abuse of power, verses 1 to 3. Just look at verse 1. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. So this may be wisdom literature, but it's telling us the flipping obvious. We know that there is oppression and injustice in the world. We can see that every time we look at the newspapers whether it's the oppression of ethnic or religious minorities or the scandal of sweatshops in Bangladesh feeding our desire for fast fashion or the oppression of global poverty and economic inequality. In fact, the, the oppression is so great that the writer of Ecclesiastes says, better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Verse 3. Oppression. And injustice. And then we see in verses four to six the problem of greed and envy. The forces that drive so many of us to into workaholism and drivenness and trampling over others as we seek to climb the corporate ladder. But again, verse four, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The message translation puts that verse even better, more vividly. What a waste. Smoke and spitting into the wind. How many of us have fallen into that trap of empty ambition and drivenness? I know I have, especially during my 15 years working in the city. Meaningless, smoke, spitting in the wind. And then in verses 7 to 8, we see perhaps the greatest tragedy of our modern age, loneliness. Verse 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. 
Surveys have suggested that the UK is the loneliness capital of Europe. Between a quarter and a third of the population say that they are either always or often lonely. Loneliness is now seen as a national epidemic with severe health consequences for those affected. In fact, it's been estimated that loneliness and poor social connections are as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. We have in our country today a loneliness crisis. Oppression, envy, loneliness. And then finally in verses 13 to 16, we see a little story that emphasizes the ephemeral, temporary nature of fame. A young poor man ascends to the throne. It's a great story. His youth and wisdom stand in contrast to the previous king who was old and foolish. We see that in verse 13. And you might think that this young king's fame and popularity would last. But no, because fame and popularity never last. They always fade away in the end. Verse 16. Those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. In this social media age especially, celebrity lasts but a moment. Do you think people will be discussing Wagatha Christie in 50 years' time? You do know about Wagatha Christie, yes. Oppression and injustice, ambition and envy, loneliness, the fleetingness of celebrity culture. We might criticise the writer of Ecclesiastes for being pessimistic, but we cannot criticise him for being unrealistic. I say him. We don't know who wrote it. Could have been a her. You see, these things are symptoms of our age. And what unites these tragic characteristics, above all, is the cult of the self, individualism, egotism, the triumph of me over we. Which is why we should be glad that this chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, for the first time in the whole book, begins to offer a glimpse of light. An answer to all the doom and gloom. An answer to all the meaningless, the vapour, the smoke. And it's in verses 9 to 12. Just look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labour. We know that this is true, don't we? Two is always better than one. And then it gives examples of somebody picking another up or two people keeping together uh, to keep warm. And then in verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I mentioned weddings at St Mary's and of course that that passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 about the, the three stranded cord is often cited at weddings. You often get it read at weddings. And it's a wonderful picture in many ways, a, a way of looking at Christian marriage of the, of the bride and the groom and God together, making that marriage strong. It's a great image of what Christian marriage is all about. But the writer of Ecclesiastes was not writing about marriages when he wrote this. What the teacher is saying is that the, the reason why everything in the world is meaningless, vapour, vanity, smoke, is because the world is obsessed with the self, with the individual, with the ego. That is what drives the oppression, the envy, the ambition, the celebrity culture, which we read about in this chapter. That is what drives us into this epidemic of loneliness, because we're not thinking of the other. 
And so the antidote to all of this individualism is the exact opposite. We, not me. Relationship and community. Because that is what we were made for. Genesis 2 and verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. 1 Peter verse, chapter 4 and verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We were made for relationship with each other. We're commanded by Jesus to love one another, to love our neighbour, but we cannot love people with whom we are not in relationship. And of course, we were made for relationship with God. It's Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 again, that punchline of the whole book, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So my challenge to you this morning is this. Yes, Ecclesiastes is pretty depressing. It is an accurate description of everything under the sun as true today in 2022 in Chesham, in our country, as it was in Old Testament times. But we have the answer. And that is relationship with each other and with God. So what are you doing? What am I doing to foster good relationships with others? What are we doing to invest in other people, our neighbours, our colleagues, whether Christian or non-Christian? What will we do this week to improve our relationships with others, to reach out to those who are lonely or oppressed? And what are we doing to invest in our relationship with God? There's that famous poem by John Donne, you probably know it. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. We are each one of us part of God's family, called to love each other and to love the world. And Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13, to love God and keep his commands. But you know, there's something very striking about this chapter in Ecclesiastes. There is one person who has experienced all the challenges mentioned here. Oppression, loneliness, the envy of others, short-term popularity. But that person has triumphed over all of them. And that person is Jesus. He was subjected to the oppression and the injustice of a kangaroo court and summary execution. He experienced loneliness in the wilderness and then in Gethsemane and afterwards when he was abandoned by his disciples. He felt the envy and the hatred of the Jewish leaders. And he had the celebrity and fame when he rode into Jerusalem. Hosanna, they cried. And then within hours, they were crying for his execution. Jesus experienced all these trials and tribulations mentioned in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and more, but it was not meaningless. It was not vapor. It was not vanity. It was not steam. Jesus, in all his humanity, went through these things with a single and clear purpose. To die on the cross for our sakes. To take on himself the penalty for sin that was rightfully ours and to rise again on the third day. And why did he do that? For relationship. That we might be in relationship with him, by his Holy Spirit, and with his Father, our Creator God in heaven. 
Again, it comes back to relationship and community, the community of God's people, the ultimate answer to the emptiness and the vanity of the world. C.S. Lewis, in the final lines of his book, Mere Christianity, puts it well, and with this I close. Look for yourself, he writes, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. The kind of stuff that we're reading about in Ecclesiastes. But Lewis goes on, but look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Look for Christ and relationship with God through Christ, and you will find him. You see, whatever question you ask, Christ is the answer. The world is not meaningless. It is not vapor. It is not vanity. When, and only when, we see the world through the prism of our Heavenly Father and through his Son, Jesus Christ. We were made for community. We were made for relationship with each other and with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that life is not meaningless, it is not vapour, it is not vanity. Because as we sang earlier, you intervened in the world through your son Jesus. You sent your only son to die for us that we might have eternal life, that we might have meaning and purpose in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, encourage us to invest in our relationship with you and our relationships with others, that we might be motivated not by me, but by we, and that we might invite people to know you more and better. So thank you, Lord, for your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.